This is the Eurasian Enigma from the Davis Center. The Davis Center. The Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. Hello and welcome to Eurasian Enigma, the podcast of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. I'm Kristen Torres, Digital Resource Coordinator at the Davis Center, and with us today is Anna Veduta, Global Outreach Director for the English version of the Russian news website Medusa. Anna is also the former press secretary for anti-corruption campaigner Alexei Navalny. Anna was at the Davis Center recently to discuss the media landscape running up to the Russian presidential election, as well as the challenges that face journalists in Russia today. Anna, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Anna, how would you characterize, on average, the attitude of most Russians to the institution of journalism? Obviously, state control of the press has somewhat loosened since perestroika and glasnost, but is there a sense that journalism should be part of a larger system of checks and balances, or is there a suspicion of independent media as a destabilizing factor? I would say that we should uh, draw a line and distinguish different generations and their attitudes to this type of question. Yesterday you told me that you were talking to people of the older generation and they said that they uh, perceive the Institute of Free Press as uh, a destabilizing factor. I don't see this kind of attitude among uh, the younger generation. And by the younger generation, I mean millennials and those who came after, after, I guess, us. <laughs> there was a certain bias against press, especially in the 90s, uh, because of the fact that the journalists were viewed as corrupt, as uh, those working for some kind of political candidates uh, and, and uh, so on and so forth. But Right now, I think that the younger generation consider free press to be a basic institute for a normal democratic society. And uh, what I can tell from my, again, from my own perspective, because I didn't conduct a survey on that, but uh, younger generation, they are very much uh, pro-free speech and free access to the information. Uh, that's the generation... Um, been mostly raised raised or spent the most uh, of their life with internet and uh, they you know consume the information in a very different way that uh, so-called television generation uh, consume it and they like to check it and they like to verify it and uh, they are very pro transparency and they're very pro uh, you know being able to to actually judge for themselves and then there is uh, people who still consume their information from uh, television television unfortunately it's inevitable it's very sad because you know the quality of delivery of uh, information from from state television is pure propaganda and uh, has nothing to do with uh, verified information or being objective uh, whatsoever so one question i have is that since there is this generational shift what do you think this means for the influence of russian state-owned tv news in the future if more people are probably not going to be turning to that source of news well, it's my only hope that they will not. And, well, personally, I, I, I would love to think that uh, it's going to vanish because it's it would be only logical and natural for it to vanish because I, 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 I honestly think that and propaganda is, is not necessary in 21st century. We've been through that already as a humanity as a whole. I think we've done with it. Apparently, uh, YouTube is a big thing. People are watching it and for this so-called Z generation, like, 
TV is non-existent and Kremlin lost on this generation. And it's good because TV is non-existent for them. I mean, they have their own television, like YouTube is their new television. They have their favorite people there. They have their anti-heroes there. They can choose how to consume information, when to consume it. And they just don't have a lot of boundaries in their head like a Soviet-raised generation. So that's why, for example, Medusa will have these new formats like these short videos and then explanatory videos and podcasts too because uh, this is how people uh, now would like to consume the information. They want to give, they would like to be given choice. And uh, they are pretty much capricious about that. So yeah, if you have, if you want to stay in business, you have to be, uh, you have to change all the time, and you have to improve on yourself. So in terms of Medusa specifically, can you give us a history of how you got started? Yeah, with great pleasure. I love this story. <laughs> so um, the year was 2014, and as you recall, in 2014, uh, Russia performed this uh, not so great act called annexation of Crimea. And it was days before, actually, before March uh, 18, when it, when it was official, when uh, Russia officially established it. A special reporter, Ilya Zar of uh, Lenta, was in the Ukraine, and he was reporting uh, about what was happening. And he also conducted an interview with the leader of Pravy uh, Sektor, which is uh, considered by the Russian laws uh, to be an extremist organization. And so this interview, the article, uh, con contains hyperlink, which led to the website of Pravi Sektor. And uh, this organization, as I mentioned, uh, considered extremist in Russia. So Roskomnadzor, it's uh, basically state censorship agency, issued a, a request that Lenta deletes it because it's, because it's extremist and it's uh, against Russian laws. And uh, while basically Galina Timchenko and, and the rest of the staff were familiarizing themselves with this claim, like basically few hours after that, uh, Galina Timchenko was fired. And, and she was replaced immediately by the guy who used to run a pro-Kremlin uh, website, Sklad. Uh, Gryslavsky. And about 80 people were very much against that. They stood up, uh, they wrote an open letter to the readers saying that that's a, an act of censorship and um, censorship is against, well, at least technically, the letter of uh, law, Russian constitution. So they do not approve that and they will not work under this uh, pro-Kremlin propagandist guy. And so basically 80 people just uh, stood up and left. And basically half a year after that, in October uh, 2014, Medusa emerged. It m emerged in uh, Riga, Latvia. It's under European uh, rule of law, which is uh, way, <laughs> way easier and, and safer and kind of protects you from uh, the state pressure of uh, Russian Federation. And, and a lot of people, uh, of those 80 people who uh, stood, stood up, uh, a lot of them ended up uh, working for Medusa. So basically Medusa is now, we recently had our third birthday and uh, we are growing, but we're still kind of a startup which uh, which was founded in a way due to the pressure of Russian government. What would you say is the intended audience for Medusa's English language coverage? What do you hope that it brings to existing English language media coverage of Russia, especially in the context of American media today, in which Russia is again the center of attention? The aim of Medusa English was never basically to reach out to 
you know, all of the uh, Americans, Europeans and uh, foreigners across the world. No, uh, just because I don't believe that it's uh, it's possible and I don't believe it's necessary. Uh, Medusa English is aimed for the professional society, for people whose professional and perhaps academic interests are uh, focused on Russia. It's uh, professors, students who are interested in Russian, Russian language and the Russian culture and policymakers, journalists, uh, people from think tanks who are now dealing with Russia. And since uh, 2014, Russia has been pretty much on the agenda, so these people are now not so scarce as they used to be before. Um, Medusa English kind of closes the gap between mainstream media and uh, basically Russian language independent media in a way that United States and just other Western media do a great job covering Russia. But of course, they have their own agenda and they have their own angle. And it's a bigger picture perspective. Medusa Russian, uh, on the other hand, is uh, have a great expertise and brilliant uh, reporters and brilliant network of freelancers and part-time journalists based in Russia who know the context, who know the agenda, who've been there their whole life and who know how to report on specific things. They can go into very deep details and provide very unique and exclusive expertise and reporting. And I think that this is very necessary to translate these news and articles, reports uh, to the audience here, because sometimes uh, those things which uh, are considered not so important by the mainstream media are actually extremely important and help to build uh, the understanding of the agenda in Russia and how uh, Russia operates. And it's our honor to translate it and to uh, provide this information to the audience in the United States and Europe so that they can see these, you know, shades of what is happening in Russia and not lose any detail. You spoke about the fact that news sources in Russia that are state-owned have maybe an ease of operation because they're funded or partially funded by the government, and it's difficult for independent media sources to get their start or remain sustainable in Russia. There are, of course, issues of censorship to deal with, but at a more basic level, can you tell us about the challenges that independent news sources have in terms of developing and sustaining a business model in Russia? Yeah, I was talking uh, in depth yesterday about uh, how since uh, 2011 uh, our media landscape shifted because uh, a lot of what used to be independent media, major independent media, was pressured and basically uh, forced to turn into something else. Well, it the very same thing happened to uh, to Medusa, because uh, our CEO Garina Temchenko used to be uh, editor in chief of Lentoru, one of the largest and more major online media outlet uh, in Russia and, uh, and one of the largest in Europe at the time. And she was forced to uh, she was fired, and then. 80 other people from the newsroom also decided to resign and that's how <laughs> we found ourselves in Latvia and became Medusa. But so those who are still in Russia and those who are still under Russian jurisdiction who faced pressure all the time, it's financial pressure, yeah. For example, what what happened to TV Rain channel, Telekanal Dorst, uh, then they were just financially pressed, uh, pressured because uh, uh, cable uh, companies refused to work with them and they had to turn to the subscription system 
And as I said, uh, Russian people are not very much used to the idea of paying for their information. But then there is this thing that actually, well, people, uh, a lot of people in Russia understand that what 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 is called news or I don't know media, uh, but state-owned is not exactly truth uh, or anything objective. So a lot of people would love to consume the information uh, from from subscribing and like and paying for it, but they can't afford it. That's another obstacle. And so I was referring to to fundraising challenges for a lot of media because they have to they have to collect this basically uh, grassroots donations like for example media zona a very good news outlet which covers uh, prisons uh, tortures and prisons and trials and uh, all this which unfortunately became the inevitable part of russian reality and they had to conduct a public fundraising campaign recently just for the fact that well they just can't uh, afford to pay to pay salary and sometimes it doesn't work out. For example, Harvard graduate Evgenia Margovna Arbatz, uh, whom I have a great respect for, she runs this uh, magazine called New Times. She used to run it for a while. And not so long ago, she was forced to refuse the idea of, uh, of a print version of the magazine because she couldn't afford it. So now it only exists online. Also simply for the money issues, because private business is afraid of investing in media because uh, as soon as you invest and as soon as the media becomes influential, you're going to get pressure and you're going to get uh, actually, you, you will be contacted by the uh, government representatives who will try to influence you and no one wants that. So basically, uh, they are only, uh, their only hope is like average people who might donate or buy a sus- subscription. But then again, like even with people who actually understand the value of this uh, qualified information and like who are willing to pay for this professional delivery of uh, information, unfortunately, not always uh, they can afford this. One interesting thing I've heard from talking to some colleagues in Russia is that while Russian news today is largely positive about the Putin administration and state of affairs within the country, sometimes there are reports that are critical um, to create the appearance of objectivity and that the appearance that the media is more than just a mouthpiece for the state. Um, One example was a report about something like not having enough kindergartens in one town, but that being the extent of the type of criticism that the media would do. Uh, There was also the idea that Russian state media could get around subjects by simply not reporting on them. What's your take? Yeah, that's precisely what they do. Uh, So for the last month, I guess, perhaps there were two incidents in, in schools involving shootings and like violence. And state television channels just were silent on the matter. They did not cover it at all as if it never happened. So basically people who are, you know, devoted to state TV viewers, they they live in alternative reality, very different from what is actually happening in Russia. Because uh, on the state news, it's all Ukraine and uh, how Western civilization is doomed. It's not about Russia at all. Like Russia is 10% of that. And the rest would be like the world, the uh, Ukraine, how awful the situation is there. So like pure propaganda, like aimed to show people that abroad is even worse. (laughs) Could you characterize the media landscape in Russia leading up to the presidential elections in March? Absolutely. So, um, So there was a candidate who wasn't registered 
who was conducting a presidential campaign. The name of this guy is Alexei Navalny, my former boss. And uh, he had a very slight chance to be registered, uh, not as a candidate, because uh, Russian government uh, reviews, uh, views him as a foe and uh, just do everything like falsificate, fabricate, don't follow the letter of law and everything to... Pro um, to prevent him from participating in elections. They did this mistake from their point of view, of course, once uh, during the mayoral campaign in 2013. I was there as uh, his press person at the time. But still, he was conducting this presidential campaign. Like, he announced his candidacy in um, December 2016. And... He was uh, truly doing all the political work which is necessary to be done in this situation. He was uh, opening the offices in uh, Russian cities. He was going there to meet with voters and uh, volunteers, and he would be uh, giving speeches, traveling all over the country, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, like all what you would call a normal political job for the candidate. On the other hand, the candidate, President Putin, uh, was silent on the matter and was avoiding the questions about if he's going to be uh, nominating his and running for the office, although it was pretty much obvious for everyone that, of course, he will be and like it's, that it's going to be a re-election of uh, Putin, not the actual election. And so he was uh, avoiding this question and, you know, being, being not uh, outspoken about it at all for the same amount of time, a year, and then in December 2017, he announced his candidacy while like visiting some plant in Nizhny Novgorod. And that was it. So he said, yeah, I'm going to run. And that's it. No job done. That's it. I mean, of course, he's been he's been shown on state television 24 seven, uh, but like just the very same way he was shown before as a president. As an acting president now, he's shown as a presidential candidate and an acting president. So he has his time on state television. And he ha there are those uh, billboards all over the country saying that something really obscure like Putin is Russia future. So nothing, you know, nothing really detailed and how exactly he's going to be the future given the, the past. So and, and then there are those other candidates who've been allowed to participate in the show, but also basically approved uh, by, by the candidate. So there were debates uh, between those like candidates who were allowed to participate on the state television. It uh, turned out ugly. They were so arguing and then there were some also harsh language involved and stuff like that. But it's just not the political work uh, as as we would consider it here. And then again, Navalny was uh, banned from participating. Uh, no surprise in that. So he turned his what used to be his presidential uh, campaign into the campaigning for the strike of the election to provoke uh, to uh, prevent the voters turnout. But you know. Honestly, he was the only guy who was doing something uh, on this election, and he is the guy who is not eventually on the list. So that's Russia. You were talking about Alexei Navalny, and you were his former press secretary for his 2013 Moscow mayoral campaign. And we've heard about how there are obstacles for journalism and news in Russia, but it seems like it would be doubly difficult to be press secretary for an embattled opposition leader. Can you describe what that experience was like? Absolutely. Um, it wasn't that harsh that, uh, in my time that it is right now, but still. Um, 
Just to give you some context on that, uh, Navalny over this year, which I uh, just talked about when he was campaigning, every fifth day of his campaign he spent in detention center. So it's months we're talking. Because the, because they would find some uh, formal uh, reason to say that he broke the law, though he never did. But that's again like how politically motivated trials against him are working in Russia, unfortunately. And the same goes for his his staff members, his uh, colleagues and volunteers. As we speak, uh, the head of presidential campaign, Leonid Volkov, is being in detention center and he will be released on March 24th, so actually after the election day. And chances are Navalny also will be detained again, just, you know, to prevent any kind of uh, railing in the streets before the election day or right after. And this goes for his current press secretary too. So I was talking about these YouTube channels and uh, video bloggers and Anti-Corruption Foundation, the the organization founded by by Navalny and functioning uh, right now as his, well, headquarters. They launched their own YouTube channel where they produce all kind of content. Uh, There is uh, some kind of uh, news video service. And so his current press secretary and the press secretary of the uh, presidential campaign were conducting the online uh, broadcasting show, um, basically on topic of the rallies which took place on January 28th. And uh, they uh, happened to conduct this show from, uh, from other country not from Russia. Uh, of course, the, the reason that they were doing it from the different countries, the, the, the reason that they could actually be sure that uh, no one will uh, prevent them from doing this and no one will break into the uh, um, online recording because uh, that, that happens all the time with uh, other shows. It happens, so that's why they, they did it for the security reasons. And when they came back to Russia, they were detained in the airport and his uh, press secretary and the press secretary of a campaign were detained and spent also spent uh, days in detention center. In my time, I was, I mean, I was bitten by the police, that's for sure. We all were, <laughs> but I was never detained. So that's new. And, and I know that uh, a lot of people from the office were like, you know, when you go to the detention center, you have, uh, there are some very strict uh, yet ridiculous rules about what is allowed to be taken there, like what products you can take, uh, how they should be packed and stuff like that. And so you need to really get prepared for that, like pack bags. And back in my time, uh, that would be your relatives, your family members who would do that. Now, I, what I hear is that Anti-Corruption Foundation, they have like some kind of emergency bags just standing there in the office because, you know, you never can tell. So that when some someone actually gets detained that the, the back is already ready so you can like you can provide this person with food and like some clothes and I don't know some necessary things uh, you know like in terms of hygiene and stuff like that so that's really new in my time it was I mean I had really the time of my life when I used to be the head of his uh, press department during the uh, mayoral campaign. That was very challenging and interesting. We had all kinds of ups and downs at the time, Uh, of course, uh, because we were banned from state television or, I don't know, talked about in a negative way. Uh, And yet we were able to to get coverage and to reach out to people by simply like conducting also all these meetings with the voters and like producing our own pieces of uh, media like for example newspapers and like printing them so it it was both challenging and it was both uh, very interesting and exciting
You've said before that the Russian presidential election is a practice in voting but not choosing. Can you expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. I think I I already touched it upon uh, while I was talking. We can't call the procedure in which uh, one candidate decides the other candidates uh, an election because otherwise Navalny would be registered and he would be given the time on the state television because it's the law. I mean, like, if you're a registered candidate, by law, you are you should be granted this uh, time on the state television. And uh, there should be debates also. I mean, like, the candidate might uh, choose not to participate in it or send someone instead. That's, uh, that's, that's true. But there should be some kind of political discussion. In this case, one real candidate who conducted a real presidential campaign or over a year uh, was banned for some uh, falsificated and uh, politically motivated reason. You just can't you just can't consider this to be free, independent, democratic procedure. Yes, there will be some voting involved because apparently Kremlin is very much focused on the uh, you know um, voter turnout. Apparently, it's a big thing for them. They keep campaigning for that now, like, really harshly. They uh, produce these uh, videos calling people to um, to participate in, in elections. But then again, it's not the elections. Voting, perhaps. And there will be people who are actually, uh, unfortunately, state employees and those who are dependent and whose salaries are dependent to something which has to do with state. They will be forced to go to... Um, to go and uh, vote if you didn't have a chance to actually uh, choose as a as a voter to see like that your candidate proved his right to be on this list and because he won your attention because he was working for you as the politicians should be doing right they basically uh, should be transparent uh, to, 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 to people they should be uh, serving people's needs Right, not uh, you know, be focused on themselves. So if they were deprived of this uh, of uh, of this privilege, uh, and someone in Kremlin decided who is allowed to run and who is not allowed to run, and who is put on your voting ballot, then I'm sorry, but you can't call it this election. This is well, as I said, at most voting. But then again, for something pre-chosen for you by Vladimir Putin, so it's not elections. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. I'm honored.